Beloved, John chapter 9, where we find ourselves this morning, and the well-known miracle of Jesus healing the man who had been born blind, is the sixth encounter with Jesus in this New Year's series. It is also, coincidentally, the sixth sign or miracle that John records in his gospel. In John chapter 2, you might recall in Cana, Jesus performed the first miracle, that of turning water into wine. John 2 and verse 11 tells us this. This was the first of his signs that Jesus did in Cana or at Cana in Galilee. And in this way, he manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. I think the first miracle at a wedding was to demonstrate that the bridegroom of heaven had come to rescue his own bride at the price of his own blood. Then in John chapter 4, verse 46 and following, Jesus heals a notable official's son. In that text, the Lord Jesus says in verse 48 of chapter 4, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus dismissed the official with a promise that his son would be healed, and returning home, he was met with great news that, in fact, his son was miraculously healed. John then states in verse uh, 54, and 54, and he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judah to Galilee. Maybe you're picking up some themes. In John, in John chapter 5, we read that Jesus then heals a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. This miraculous sign, we are told, took place in Jerusalem, and specifically on the Sabbath, And it raised the ire of the Jews who had then began to persecute Jesus because, in their minds, he was breaking from their traditions, their precious customs and traditions. Two additional miracles are recorded in John chapter 6. I got to share this story with the Awana children on Wednesday night. One is the feeding of the 5,000, which demonstrates that Jesus alone is the one who cures the hunger of man's soul as well as the Lord walking on the water, which of course displays that he is the one who made the water. And if he wants to stand on it, he can stand on any day he wants. And then we have John chapter 9 and the healing of a man born blind. This miracle is only followed in John's gospel with the miracle, aside from Jesus' own resurrection, of the resurrection of his dear and precious friend Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. There are seven signs in the Gospel of John that show readers undeniably that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. As we saw last week, John 20 verses 30 and 31 tell us why this beloved disciple carefully selected these particular signs and wrote them down so meticulously well. John 20, verse 30 says, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Dear one, listen to me. John 17, verse 3 says, Now this is life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What we're hearing today, what we see throughout the Gospel of John, is for our life-giving purpose, that we might meet Jesus 
and be changed by him. Life and death. Light and darkness. Belief and rejection. Listen, today, the illuminating miracle of the man born blind in a certain sense, is simply a physical illustration of the spiritual truth about Christ that the Apostle John has already alluded to in his prologue back in John chapter 1. Listen to these words. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 1 verse 4. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Literally, it has not laid hold of it. It has not perceived it. John 1, 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all may believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And John 9 is a dramatic revelation of this precept we have just read. You know, there's perhaps an unfortunate chapter division between John chapters 8 and 9. You may not recognize that at first glance. In terms of chronology, here we are together in the late fall of what would have certainly been the last year of Jesus' public ministry. We have a couple of time markers in the broader context. John chapter 7 verse 14 tells us that Jesus had gone up to Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, which would be in late September, early October, according to our our calendars today. In John chapter 10, verse 22, we are then told that Jesus is still, or perhaps now once again, back in Jerusalem at the Feast of Dedication, which would have been in the month of December. So the episode that we find in John chapter 9 is somewhere between October and December of the fall before the, the, the last Uh, supper and the time when Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross for our sin. But more to the point, what is recorded between these feasts is rather a lengthy narrative that features two very important themes, and those themes are opposition and revelation or illumination. Opposition and revelation. You see, back in John chapter 8, verse 12, during a particularly heated encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees, the Lord famously says, the first of two times he says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And now you'll note that Clay, our brother, just a few moments ago read that same line, but over in John chapter 9, verse 5. Where again we read Jesus saying, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Again, light and darkness, belief and rejection form the background to the healing of the man born blind. 
The account of Jesus healing the congenitally blind man, in fact, the only such miracle recorded anywhere in the Bible, teaches us another illuminating truth about the person of Jesus Christ, and it is this. That as the light of the world, Jesus alone has the cure for man's spiritual blindness. This is a condition that is itself congenital, which is to say it is our condition from birth. Where men and women, due to Adam's federal headship and fall from grace, suffer from spiritual blindness and darkness due to sin. There's not just one man born blind in this passage. For in a spiritual sense, we are all born blind when we come to this passage. To see Jesus and to receive him by faith is life itself. Now in John chapter 8, Jesus' announcement where he says, I am the light of the world, made the devil's children, the Pharisees, seethe in anger and raise their hellish shouts and insults at Christ. But in John chapter 9, Jesus' statement, the same statement, I am the light of the world, brings new vision and fresh insight to a blind beggar who progressively comes to understand who Christ is by faith. The same statement in chapter 8 leads to rejection. The statement in chapter 9 leads to worship. In John 8, the light of the world is despised and rejected. In John 9, he is received and he is praised. The Bible says that Satan, friends, is the little g God of this world. He has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of of Christ, who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. And so the story of Jesus healing the man born blind in John chapter 9 shows us The miracle of God's kindness and the grace that comes through Christ alone to overcome the depths and the darkness of our sinful condition and state. This is a miracle that we all need, a miracle that God alone can perform. Some of you might know the name George Beverly Shea. He sang for many, many years at uh, Billy Graham Crusades around the world, and he often sang these specific words about this poor, sightless beggar to illustrate the amazing goodness of God's gospel of grace. One sat alone beside the highway begging. His eyes were blind, the light he could not see. He clutched his rags and shivered in the shadows. Then Jesus came and bid his darkness flee. He's saying, when Jesus comes, the tempter's power is broken. When Jesus comes, the tears are wiped away. He takes the gloom and fills our life with glory. For all is changed when Jesus comes to stay. It's so good. And it is really a vivid illustration of the story that we find open before us in John chapter 9. Notice with me here that there really are three main parts to the story that we find in John chapter 9. Three big sections to this big miracle of the healing of the man born blind. The first part is found in verses 1 through 12 of John chapter 9. We could title this particular uh, part of the story, The Healing of the Man Born Blind. Here we find the details of his healing. Secondly, we would uh, then see the the investigation. Uh, Really, it unfolds itself in three stages of the miracle on the part of the cynic Pharisees. 
The second part from verses 13 to 34, the investigation of the miracle by the Pharisees. This is then followed by the final point, which actually contains a verdict. The healing, the, the healed man sees spiritually now and worships Jesus, but the seeing Pharisees reject Jesus and are consequently condemned. Verses 35 to 41. We're going to spend a little time this morning in each of those stories with the majority of our time there in the details of the first point. It's interesting to note the vital link and connection between John chapters 8 and 9. It actually is mentioned at the very outset of the chapter. Perhaps you noted that in John 9 verse 1. The Bible says, as he passed by. Again, this is why I say there's an unfortunate chapter division perhaps there in our Bibles. We really should read John 9 with John 8 in mind. As he passed by, that is the Lord passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now some have alleged that the very first miracle in this chapter was simply the fact that Jesus noticed this particular blind beggar at all. You have to understand the sense of hurriedness and the sense of danger that is happening there in John chapter 8, particularly with verse 12, where Jesus announces he is the light of the world, only then to incite his enemies to add insult to literal injury. They picked up stones in order to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in John 8, 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus, we are told, hid himself and went out of the temple, and then there's a, a translation issue here. Some translators add, and going through the midst of them. Maybe even a miraculous Houdini-like disappearance on the part of Christ to get away from his enemies even there. Now, as I studied this week, it occurred to me that you have to admit that it's a bit odd. That one particular helpless beggar, undoubtedly among a throng of them, would have arrested Jesus' attention. You ever thought about that? But I think that really reveals just how blind and insensitive we often are to the plights of people around us. You see, this is how Jesus walked on earth. He noticed people. He saw people. He moved with a sense of purpose. Well, the really odd thing about this particular scene, at least to me, is the disciples' theologically curious but emotionally insensitive question that they ask right in this passage. We find that in verse 2 of chapter 9. The Bible says, And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Remember what has just happened, folks. Jesus is having stones hurling past his head. He's outside of the temple area, I'm sure, at this point. He sees the blind man, and his disciples want to have a theology class. It's a little comedic, I think. You know what? This would be a great time to stop and ask the master for the answer to the question of human suffering and the problem of evil, perhaps. The point I think that John is wanting us to see is they didn't see the person, they just saw a problem. They just saw a problem. Jesus, why was this man born blind? Was it his sin or perhaps the sin of his parents that made him this way? Again, the question is interesting and it's not out of line, it's just rather untimely and insensitive. 
Well, listen, without getting caught up in the disciples' misplaced curiosity, let me just say a couple things about the issue of sickness and sin. It was not at all uncommon in the ancient world for spiritual associations and connections to be tied to physical malformations and conditions. In fact, we've talked about that many times here, that God is obviously on the side of the victors in battle, for instance. Or perhaps if you're poor and you have no money, it was a sign of God's displeasure and anger with you. These are some of the common ancient conceptions of of how life turned out. You, You sort of get what you reap, you might say. In fact, the rabbis of the day believed that such conditions were often the result of someone sinning inside the womb. I'm not exactly sure how that works, but that's what they surmised. Perhaps it was the promiscuousness of the parents, which is an issue still today, that caused such birth abnormalities. We don't know, and that's not the point of the passage anyway. The important thing to note is that Jesus doesn't take the bait. Instead, we read in verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but rather that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. There's a lot of unsolved mysteries in life. What we do know is that human sin as a whole has resulted in human suffering as a whole. We know that. That is a verifiable fact. But on this occasion and this particular man's blindness again from birth was evidently for a higher purpose and reason. This blind man's physical darkness was a sovereignly placed canvas upon which the works of God might be marvelously painted and displayed in his life. Again, remember John chapter 1, friends. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This man's physical and spiritual darkness was itself an easel for God's grace to be poured out all over it. And then what we notice is in a creative act, I believe echoing Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, John records this in verse 6 of of chapter 9. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. And he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. I hear an echo of John 1 again. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made through him. That was made. What is happening here in this passage? But a prophetic act on the part of Christ, mimicking the beginning of creation, where the Lord Jesus kneels down and takes a fistful of earth and he makes some mud with his own spittle and then forms new eyes for the man and in order for the man to see. By the way, this isn't the first. Or the only time that Jesus does a similar symbolic action involving his spit. In fact, two times over in Mark's gospel, once in chapter 7 and once in chapter 8, Jesus uses his saliva to heal people. Once a deaf man and once a blind man. 
And again, by the way, historically, people in that day believed there were healing uh, elements to people's saliva. And so there, there might have been some association there, but this is, this is something far, far different. To me, these are intentional, unambiguous echoes of divine creation happening once again. Jesus, the Lord of creation, is announcing the arrival of the new creation through signs and wonders like healing a blind man. Well, after putting the mud on the man's eyes, we find in verse 7, Jesus says to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. John tells us this means sent. That is the word Siloam means sent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, in yet another prophetic act reminiscent, perhaps, of the Old Testament prophet Elisha, you might recall sending Naaman to wash in the Jordan, which he initially refused, if you remember the story. Jesus gives the blind man a charge, a command, an order. Really, it's a test of faith, I believe. Um, And he says, go and wash in the scent pool. Notice the blind man is here being healed by the sent one in the pool of sending. And thereby he himself becomes a sent one. A witness to the power of Jesus. He is plunged in the pool of sent by the one who was sent. Immersed in the sent one's sending story. That's what we find here. We read the neighbors and those who had seen him before as, as before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and, and beg? And some said it is he, and others said no, but it's, uh, he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. And so they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man they called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool, go to Siloam and wash And so I went and washed, and I received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. Such an interesting passage. Now listen, part of the punch, and therefore the point of this story, is the progressive nature of this man's spiritual illumination. I want to point that out for you this morning. What do I mean? Listen, in this first section of the story, the healing of the man born blind, it ends in an act of obedience, that is, his physical sight being restored, but he's still got one big problem. He doesn't know what Jesus looks like. He doesn't know what Jesus looks like. And what's the point of having functioning eyes if you can't gaze upon the face of Jesus? Who healed you? And what happened to you? Well, verse 11 says, he answered, the man they called Jesus made mud and he anointed my eyes and told me to go and wash in the scent pool. He didn't know what he looked like. He knew the one of whom they referred, but he didn't know him personally, you might say. So notice again, at the beginning of the very story, the blind man only knows him as the man they call Jesus. Verse 11. Now let's fast forward to the middle of this miracle, which we don't have time to really go into much detail, but notice that the Pharisees are going to conduct a three-tier investigation, a three-fold 
investigation into the events surrounding this alleged miracle. We're really going to get to the bottom of this, they say. It is, after all, a Sabbath day, and this miracle happening on a Sabbath day very much upset the religious establishment. Here, part, here is part one of the Pharisees' investigation, and it begins in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had, been, who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? And notice, or since he has opened your eyes, and notice what he says, he is a prophet. Again, we note a progressive illumination. As at the same time, what does real spiritual blindness look like in the first place? Well, it looks like these Pharisees, friends. This is the big question looming over the Pharisees' entire investigation of this mighty miracle of Christ. By the way, it's interesting to note that kneading, kneading, like you might knead some dough to bake it, which is technically what Jesus would have done with the mud and the spittle, was one of 39 specific actions forbidden by the Pharisees on the Sabbath. You might say, Jesus needed to heal him on the Sabbath. I worked on that all week long. The Pharisees, notice, were themselves blinded to the works of God being performed in broad daylight by the Messiah's visitation. So they say to him, who is this guy? Who do you say that he is to the man who had just been healed? And his response is simply, he is a prophet. He is a prophet. In verse 11, he was the man they call Jesus. But in verse 18, he is one step clearer. He is a prophet. Stage two of the Pharisees' sham investigation involved calling the man's poor parents. This often happens uh, at times. The man's parents were obviously scared to death of the religious rulers of Israel, but also they were scared to death of losing their access to the synagogue, which was really what had them all been out of shape. Verse 22 of our text tells us, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And that's exactly what takes place. And so his parents plead the fifth. He's of age. Go back and ask him. And that's what happens. The Pharisees executed the final stage of their investigation by summoning this formerly blind man once more before them for a second interview. Perhaps he'll trip up on the details of his story this time. We'll, we'll catch him in a lie, they perhaps think to themselves. Notice John's astonishingly beautiful record of the dialogue, beginning in verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner, referring to Jesus. He answered, whether the blind man answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I know, though I was blind, 
Now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, and this is so hilarious, I have already told you, and you would not listen to me. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to be his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, well, that's amazing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. And here it is. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a, blind, a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could, not, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Listen to me, there is no greater blindness than to be blind to your own blindness. And that is exactly the state of these Pharisees. Here in a stunning twist of irony and hilarity, the formerly blind beggar becomes the teacher of Israel. He instructs the physically seeing yet spiritually imperceiving Pharisees in the ways of God. And here again we see yet a further progression of his spiritually developing perception of the person and work of Christ. Verse 33. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He's gone from, verse 11, the man they call Jesus, to verse 18, he is a prophet, to verse 33, he's on a mission from God. He's sent from God. Otherwise, he could not do these sorts of things. This acknowledgement, of course, seals the man's fate before this court. The Pharisees' investigation concludes with an effective rendering of excommunication for this poor blind beggar. Actually, he's a newly seeing seeker. Which brings us to our final point and the dramatic conclusion of this important miracle story for you and me this morning. Verses 35 to 41 is where we find this man's spiritual sight fully and finally restored. He's gotten new eyes to see physically, but he doesn't have a new heart yet to see spiritually. But here, he soon will. Not only that, but there will also be another verdict rendered at the end of this passage, that one given to the Pharisees, saying, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you insist, we see your guilt remains. Notice with me for the first time, Back in this passage, since spitting in the earth and making new eyes for this blind man, we see Jesus show up again. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Do you see the progression? Years ago, an English poet by the name of Jean Ingelow wrote these words. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew 
that he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Thou didst reach forth thy hand and mine enfold. I walked and sank not on the storm-vexed sea. T'was not so much that I on thee took hold as thou, dear Lord, on me. I find, I walk, I love, but oh, the whole of love is but my answer, Lord, to thee. For thou were long beforehand with my soul. Always thou hast loved me. Do you understand, friends? As marvelous and wonderful as the physical restoration of sight to a man born blind is, the greater miracle in this passage is that of a soul illuminated by the light and grace of Jesus Christ. Of not a man finding Jesus to see him, but of Jesus finding him to let him be seen and be worshipped. That is the greater miracle by far. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, I read you verse 4 earlier, says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is the miracle of new light and new birth. Clearly, this formerly blind man was on a collision course with spiritual illumination. The man they call Jesus made mud, verse 11. He is a prophet, verse 17. This man, if he were not sent from God, could do nothing, verse 33. Becomes in verse 35 or 36, it is. He is the Lord, and he falls down and he worships him. Notice verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man had been seen by Jesus. He had been helped by Jesus. He was sought by Jesus. And now he would be illuminated by Jesus. When Jesus found him, he asked the man the question par excellence. The question above all questions. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe that, friend? I'm asking you this morning. Do you believe in the Son of Man? You see, if you don't have your spiritual eyes open, you don't even understand the question, perhaps. If you have had your spiritual eyes open, your heart should leap within you. Yes, I believe in the Son of Man, but you can lay no claim to the credit for it. It is the Lord our God alone who opens the hearts of dead sinners. And this miracle is proof positive of that truth. Verse 36, he answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Well, beloved, listen, the same Christ who revealed or illuminated himself to this formerly blind man there in Jerusalem is speaking and ruling over the throne of his word to us this morning. And we hear the same question, do what do you believe about me? What do you believe about the Son of Man? Well, the formerly blind, formerly blind man said, Lord, I believe, and his response was to fall down in worship. More than sight to his eyes, this blind man's life was forever changed because there was now for the first time worship in his heart. Worship 
in his heart. He had gone from hearing of this man, Jesus, who made the mud, to confessing that he was likely a prophet of God, to claiming that if he was not from God, he could do no powerful thing, to confessing that he was Christ Messiah. What about you? And what about me? This is the epitome of saving faith in Jesus as Messiah. To see him and savor him. To see him and worship him. To respond with faith in the one who has revealed himself in the word. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Beloved, not all have faith. This is a picture-perfect story to show us what true conversion is like. But not all have faith. For the end of this story concludes with a sobering indictment. An ultimate verdict of judgment rendered against those who should have been able to see Jesus all along. We find in verse 39 the end of the story. Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And the point is that true sight, beloved, requires more than eyeballs. It requires a heart of faith. Dr. Tony Evans put it this way. Jesus said that the reason I have come into the world is so that people who don't see, who need to see, and want to see, because they know they don't see, can now see, because I've illuminated their understanding by my presence through my word. But those who think they see because they are self-sufficient, because they are prideful, because they don't recognize their spiritual need, those will be the people who will be blind and will remain in darkness. I have come to judge these people. You have to know what you don't know in typical Tony Evans fashion. Beloved, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And I certainly hope this morning you have eyes to rejoice and see it. Let's bow in prayer. Almighty God and Father, once again, thank you for this marvelous encounter with the Messiah, Jesus. As the psalmist says, for you, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh Lord, we thank you. Oh Lord, we praise you that we, like this blind man, were once lost. We were once blind, but now by grace we see. Father, I pray that that is true for 100% of people in this room and those watching from home. But perhaps, and almost without question, that is not the case. Oh, Father, right now by your Spirit, if there is one who is coming under some measure of conviction by the preaching of your word this morning, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would draw him or her to, your, to yourself in saving faith by the working and the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, draw them home to the Father. Convict of sin. Give clarity of sight to see and savor the person Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, thank you for the miracle you once wrought in our hearts by grace and through faith. And now may we, like this blind man, become a witness to the one who sent us to tell of what he's done for us. We pray in his name.